Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? What is Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? Dancing with the Black Elephant? From Yeshiva University, this is Andrew Boyarski, and you are listening to Dancing with the Black Elephant. I'm speaking today with David Ingram, who is Willis Reinsurance's Enterprise Risk Management Advisory Group Head. He helps insurance uh, company clients to develop and improve their enterprise risk management practices. He was previously in the insurance ratings group of Standard & Poor's, where he led their initiative to incorporate ERM into insurance ratings. David also has held executive positions within insurance companies. He's also a frequent writer and speaker on ERM. Four times he has won the award for Best Practical Paper at the annual ERM Symposium. He was recently the chair of the International Actuarial Association Enterprise and Financial Risk Committee and chair of the U.S. Actuarial Standards Board of the ERM Committee. He now leads the IAA ERM Task Force of the Actuarial Standards Committee. In those roles, David was instrumental in the promulgation of the first ERM-related professional standards of practice for actuaries in the U.S. and globally. It's a great pleasure to have you here today, David. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Glad to be here. First question I have is, uh, would you provide a very basic explanation of the concept of plural rational theory? Sure. Uh, Plural rational theory comes from anthropology, and uh, I got interested in it when I left Standard & Poor's because I found that it was a theory that did a great job of explaining the variety of reactions that I saw in the insurance uh, industry space to the ideas of ERM that we were putting forward from Standard & Poor's. And and, uh, what it suggested was that there's four different approaches uh, to risk and risk management uh, and and those four different approaches are because people believe different things about how how risky the world is and 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 a third part to it is that their beliefs are based on their experience they've experienced the world at different levels of risk and so uh, people are assuming that something that they've experienced is going to uh, be carried over into the future and, and, and therefore be a, a, a different platform on which to, to work on uh, in their approach to risk. So can you tell us what the specific four vantage points are just briefly? Sure, yeah, the, the four different viewpoints, um, uh, you, you can explain three of them extremely simply. It's, it's sort of a, uh, you know, mama bear, papa bear, baby bear uh, kind of approach to risk. You know, it's it, risk is high, risk is medium, risk is low. Uh, and uh, But then there's the fourth point of view, which I found real interesting and real challenging when I first read about it. And, and, uh, but it's, it's the view that we don't know. Uh, that 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 the future is is unpredictable uh, and and uh, the interesting thing about that fourth view is if you think about a lot of things that have been going on in the last 10 years now almost since the financial crisis a lot of aspects of uh, economics politics uh, many areas have been unpredictable have been uncertain have been in flux uh, and so I, I think the insights of this theory that that is a valid way that the world can be and that there are uh, rational approaches if you think that's what the world is, uh, I, I think is a great contribution from this theory. 
This is a good point. So based on current economic data, do you think that we are in a boom period, soon to be followed by a bust? And if so, what are the indicators for either of those two? Well, some things are, are in a boom period uh, and, and may be followed by a bust. You know, the, the kind of things you look at are the, the things that get the headlines, things like the stock market valuation, uh, things like uh, Bitcoin values, uh, things like uh, the amount of lending that's going on are all indications, classical indications, that, that, that we may be in a boom or even a bubble, uh, the part of the boom where it's about to, to burst and, and go down. And uh, within plural rationality theory, the interesting thing is that, uh, uh, that it, it says that if you believe in the boom, uh, you're going to help accelerate that. Uh, you're going to act in such a way uh, that the boom thinking is that, is that there isn't that much risk out there. And, and so the boom thinking isn't thinking we're going to have a bust. The boom thinking is the boom will continue. And, and certainly I saw just in the paper the other day saying, well, is, is Bitcoin overvalued? Well, maybe it is, but maybe it could double or triple in value before the market reconciles that. And, and, and that's kind of what boom thinking is, uh, that, 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 that things could just keep going this, that way. So if I may, if we look back historically, we look at uh, tulip mania, for example, in the 16th century in the Netherlands, those who are risk takers or tend to be, uh, have higher risk tolerance uh, or be more, what I would say, want, uh, feel that they're uh, their success is fed by taking greater risk, start to enter the market, or it pushes people more in that in that vein because they feel like they're they're maybe losing out on these potential gains. Is that is that a correct uh, understanding of that? People that are cautious and are going into those markets like the tulip market, like the real estate market of of two thousand five, six, seven notice that that they're they're losing out notice that their next door neighbor that went into the market is now driving a new mercedes uh and 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 they're still driving a a used whatever and uh and and that uh you know they they see that okay by by being careful here you know i I've, I've earned my five percent return on my investments whereas they're getting 15 20 30 percent uh so so that the each of these periods, each of these styles of of of, uh, of risk or environment, uh, draw people into reacting to them uh, by disappointing the people that are expecting something else. Related to this, and looking back at the 2008 financial crisis, is there an early warning system in place to alert decision makers, be they in corporate executive suites, boardrooms, or in financial regulators uh, within some of the central banks uh, or regulatory agencies to be alerted to a looming financial crisis? I, I'm not sure. I, I think that one of the reactions to things like that is to try and make everybody always be safe, and which goes trying to make the, the, the um, environment always be moderate and try and get people to always act as if they're in a moderate environment. So they're, they're never taking these giant risks that could cause a problem. And that, that's kind of the reaction uh, or the approach that, that kind of helped 
make the bubble 2008 as big as it was and as bad as it was. Uh, it, it's kind of the same thing you get in, in a forest where you've prevented forest fires for a long time. You know, in the forest, you get a buildup of, of kindling, really, uh, that makes the eventual fire much bigger. Uh, in, in the economy, you get the same kind of thing. So there's an admission, even among regulators, that some of the things that they insist on are pro-cyclical. If things are going really well, they, they make the companies look a little bit better. If things start going downhill, they, they help accelerate that um, because the capital charges, for instance, uh, when valuations drop, all of a sudden you have to sell things to, to make up for the fact that your, your capital dropped, but your charges don't change. And, and, and so there's a, a self-feeding uh, feedback loop there that drives prices even lower because you keep selling into a, a declining market. Do you see that we are in an environment now where the pricing for insurance instruments, whether we're talking about on the individual, on the commercial, even in the reinsurance uh, sector, is going to have to reflect uh, the recent natural disaster events. We um, experienced a high watermark in terms of the number of uh, hurricanes this season, uh, category three and higher, uh, the wildfires out in the western United States, the major earthquake that took place in Mexico City. Does this increase the level of risk in the system and then commensurate, does that impact the overall pricing of premiums? Well, it increases the level of risk if you believe that all that bad experience we had this year is indicative of continuing bad experience. Um, back in 2005 and 2006, there was a lot of, of hurricane activity. And there was a lot of discussion in, in the insurance industry then of, well, should we be looking at pricing our insurance for hurricane uh, impacted business based on very short-term trends or, or very long-term trends, because when you looked at really long-term averages, things were pretty benign. When you look at short-term, you say, well, are, are we in a cycle so that we're in the, in the down part of the cycle now, uh, or down meaning more worse storms? Uh, and, and then we went, in, went forward and had 10 years without a major hurricane. That, that's kind of a, a simple representation of how these ideas work, is that the bad experience caused people to be more cautious. And uh, whereas it turns out the, the world wasn't that way. So the, the insurance industry built up a lot, a lot of capital over those 10 years, at least the part of it does play in the, uh, in the property sector. And, and, and so uh, the losses that were experienced in the past year have reduced that, that excess capital that folks had. But I don't think there were any significant insolvencies of insurance companies, whereas when there were really bad storms in the past, there were always a couple that were thin, thinly um, capitalized enough that they were gone. Um, so yes, uh, the, the word is that prices are increasing and, and maybe because of the excess capital, prices have gotten too low. And so maybe we're getting closer to rational pricing um, or, or not. Um, the, the thing about this theory is it isn't predictive. Uh, it's not telling us what's going to happen next. It's telling us what are the possibilities for what can happen next. And uh, so you, you need to be prepared knowing that it might not be just a single, simple continuation of, of the experience you've recently had. 
Since this program addresses the needs of future professional risk managers, I want to circle back to the plural rational theory and how would professional risk managers apply this within their ERM programs or within their risk management programs in a company or in an organization? Well, among those of us that have worked on it, we've got two different approaches. I'll tell you mine first, and then I'll tell you um, the other folks' idea. Uh, And and, and mine is kind of an idealized approach, which is that that, um, you you look at it and you say, okay, with these four environments, there's four different sort of best approaches to risk management. In the environment where things are really dangerous, risk is very high, uh, the approach would be to be very careful in taking any risk. Um, usually what that means for an insurance company is that you don't expand at that point. You don't move into something new. You stick with your knitting. You, you stick with the things you know the best how to do. And you don't try and grow a lot. When risk is moderate, uh, you, you do try and grow, but you grow at a, a moderate pace. And, and that, that actually, that moderate environment is the one that fits the sort of standard ERM uh, paradigm the best, uh, is that in, in a moderate period, things are adverse, but, but not uncontrollably adverse, uh, so that you can be, uh, you can manage the risk, you can be careful with it, uh, and, and and, and therefore, you can prosper, but not too much. Um, the in in the uh, in the low risk environment, uh, what what the the risk manager has to do is is not get in the way too much. In in the low risk environment, you still have to make sure that you aren't out there doing crazy things. But you have to recognize that there's a lot of things you can do that can make you money in that environment. Uh, so that's the environment, and, and you heard this in the run-up to the financial crisis. You heard a lot of chief risk officers saying, "I'm in here to be a partner to the businesses," and and, and that's that, that's more of of uh, how risk management needs to be uh, in that boom environment. In the uncertain environment, uh, the one that I think for a lot of uh, aspects of of life we're in now, and have been in for a while, uh, the the idea there is not to make big commitments, is to diversify, is to make many small commitments. You don't know which ones of them are going to pay off. Uh, and, and what you got to recognize is at least uh, in, in a lot of our known history, we haven't had any long periods of uncertainty. What we've been in in the last 10 years is one of the longer periods since the Industrial Revolution of wild uncertainty. But we're going to get out of this sooner or later, and we're going to move into uh, one of the other periods, you know, and, and it, it's mixed. Some things are in boom right now, um, not so many in, in, a, in a bust period now. And uh, as we move out of the uncertain environment, we're going to be in one of the other environments. Some of the things that we chose to do in the uncertain environment are going to thrive, and the risk manager needs to be ready to uh, react to that and, and to help the organization to emphasize, to, to identify the things that are going to thrive in the new environment and, and, to, and to push those to, to, to be a, a new specialty for the company, for instance.
reading your article, Understanding the Four Seasons of Risk Management, you appear to advocate for a dynamic ERM program. And I think that's what you were speaking to just now. You described a little bit of what the system might look like. Can you elaborate a little bit more about some of the components of what would go into a program like that, Um, some of the triggers when uh, the environment changes from one that's moderate to, let's say, low or from low to a high-risk environment? Sure. And, and what I call that system was rational adaptability um, to, as, as opposed to rational expectations, um, where uh, what, what you're rationally expecting is things are going to change at some point. Uh, and, and so what you need to be doing is identifying uh, sort of the, the key indicators of either the continuation of the environment you're in or the change in, in those environments. And, and the indicators depend, uh, differ a lot. You know, in a lot of these articles, we talk about risk broadly, but uh, each, in each individual situation, you're talking about a specific risk, uh, whether it's an, a, a risk you're insuring, a risk you're investing in, uh, or, or a, a business you're operating in a, in a marketplace. And, and the indicators that you'd use would, would vary according to which thing it is. Um, and, and they aren't different from indicators that, uh, that you'd usually use. Uh, you know, for instance, if you're talking about the stock market, the, the, the simplest indicators tell you, uh, you know, as you're going through those things, you know, you, you look at volatility and, and, and how much volatility there is tells you uh, if you're uh, in this uncertain marketplace, for instance, you know, if there's a lot of volatility, the stock market is uncertain. If if you look and the trend in prices just keeps going up and up, you know, you're in a boom environment. It's it, it's not it, it's not tricky. But what's uh, what's needed to to be able to take advantage of this theory is is to to not get caught up in in the current thinking. Uh, which is that whatever it is now, it's going to continue like that forever. And, and, and that, what that means is, is that when these indicators do give you the signal, you know, uh, the things that, that, that cause folks to say, uh, I guess it was Greenspan that said, you know, there's a rational exuberance in, in the market there. And no, it didn't, the market didn't blow up the next week or month. It, it was a year, year and a half later that, that the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, and and you got to recognize no the, the these aren't indications of exactly what to do when but but they're they're indications of, of how to how to spread these things out uh, the example I like to sh- talk about about that is if you look back um, and certainly uh, J P Morgan has it, had its ups and downs uh, since the financial crisis but if you look at their experience uh, running up to and during the financial crisis they were one of the big banks that had um, the less bad experience and partly that's because they didn't go all in as a number of the other banks did uh, they left some money on the table in in banking terminology and and you can think of that in the context of this theory as recognizing that things weren't going to stay the way they were and leaving some options open not not fully investing is is recognizing the strategy that might be good in the uncertain time where you didn't put a lot of money a lot of your eggs in any one basket uh 
the the other approach that, other than this rational adaptability uh, that some of my colleagues I've worked with on this, Michael Thompson is the most prominent one who is uh, an anthropologist um, who worked with this theory for 20 or 30 years. Um, he, he calls it um, clumsy uh, thinking, which is really just trying to come up with approaches that are a hybrid of uh, two or more of, of, of these points of view. I, I kind of think a hybrid of three points of view is very difficult, an unstable idea. A hybrid of four points of view is impossible. Um, so I think mostly the hybrids are between two points of view and, and something like that uh, J.P. Morgan story is a hybrid of, of two ideas. So you mentioned J.P. Morgan Chase uh, and I know that you provide advisory and ERM to different types of companies and also a speaker uh, in various uh, fora. Are there industries or are there some companies um, perhaps if, if you're at liberty to share, great. If not, just to give an example of the type of company and how they've used plural rational theory and uh, it's, uh, the concept of it effectively to orient their ERM program and to be effective out in the marketplace. Um, I, I think there's a lot of companies in the insurance sector for whom they don't necessarily know the names of this theory, but they do think of their business very much in terms of, uh, of a cycle of, of ups and downs. Uh, and in general, the insurance industry used to be in uh, a cycle very much like the banking industry of blowing up every 10 or 15 years. And uh, it, it, it's, it's been one of the longer periods without a blow up uh, recently in the insurance industry where the only blow ups have been really big events like these gigantic hurricanes. And, and uh, one example I saw of that uh, is, is a company that uh, looked at their pricing margins. And, and one indication of, of these cycles is the fact that margins get squeezed thinner and thinner until they actually, in the past at least, have gone generally negative. And so looking that way at margins in the insurance industry is really difficult to do because there's so many different things that we put prices on that aren't comparable. So it, it takes a lot of analytical work to get you know, uh, one number, here's, here's the risk-adjusted margin. You, you get an unadjusted margin, the fact it goes up and down, maybe just because you're taking, writing more risky business or less risky business. But if you risk-adjust the margin then, and then they track that and they say, okay, we, it looks like we have two more quarters to run with favorable pricing in this sector, and then we're going to start de-emphasizing that sector. So that's, that's an example of a company that does that. Uh, other companies, there's a number of companies, uh, mostly reinsurance companies that were founded in Bermuda in the first decade of, of this century, uh, who uh, incorporated the ideas of ERM into their company as they were starting out. Uh, and, and that produces a very different culture than the companies that are trying to bring it into a culture that already exists. And, and some of those companies um, operate in, in a way that's much closer to the, the, the pure finance models where they're in and out of things all the time. So that uh, they may have four or six or eight businesses going 
And if you look a year later, um, they may still only have two of those, and they've got four, six, or eight different ones going. And they're constantly adjusting everything on a, on a risk-reward basis and also all constantly looking at their mix of business and, and how their different risks either correlate with each other or, or diversify their risk. So I wanted to ask you a question about a current a trend, or it's really more of a movement within insurance and major change, much like uh, what's called uh, fintech or financial technology that is changing the way that financial investment is being done uh, within that industry. If we look at the subset of insurance, you know, as let's say as part of the financial industry, but uh, insurance is unique. There is a movement of what, what's called insurance tech or insure tech that's out there. Can you speak to the level of how that will change the marketplace for insurance? Sure, I'll give an example. Everybody's probably seen the ads for companies like Progressive and Geico that sell their insurance through direct uh, contact with the customers. And uh, those companies and other companies that do business like them have were also the the leaders, uh, the first companies that went into this thing that's now getting a label attached to it, uh, which is that they were being much, much more carefully data-driven. And one of the things that they were able to do, if you think of underwriting in the insurance business, the, the purpose of underwriting is to divide the customers up and to put them in different boxes, and everybody in that box gets the same price. Uh, and, and you try and find things that makes the people similar enough so that the, their claims will will be predictable then uh, and, and, and that you set the price and you make money on, on almost every box all the time. Uh, well, what uh, the first ideas of these data-driven companies was to take the boxes and cut them into pieces. And what they found was in each of the big boxes that that had traditionally been operated in, you could divide it up into six or eight or 16 smaller pieces. Some of them had lower premiums and some of them had higher premiums. If they could sell insurance to all the people that had lower claims in there, they could offer them a savings. That's one of the drivers of the savings that those kind of folks offer, is they just refine the underwriting Unfortunately, though, for the people that don't have that a- approach, they're left with the business with the higher premium, or the higher claims, and they didn't set their premiums knowing that, and and so they wind up losing money. So what does that do to the marketplace? Well, uh, take auto insurance where those those companies operate the most. Uh, auto used to be sort of a cash cow for a lot of companies. Um, a lot of companies that had some kind of regional uh, business operation, they could write homeowners and auto uh, to a certain segment of folks, and uh, the homeowners was up and down because of natural catastrophes mostly, but the auto was a pretty steady profit. Well, that's gone. Uh, the the, the, the higher-tech companies have, have taken that away, at least temporarily. All the other companies have to try and catch up and, and to be able to divide their underwriting up in the same way so that they can compete head-to-head. Maybe when they're done doing that, 
things will go back to the way they were, but just with a thinner margin. Uh, so what's going on with this insure tech and all this, all this it, it is applying the same kind of ideas uh, to other lines of business as well. And, and so uh, what it does is it makes insurance much more competitive. It, it doesn't lower rates for everybody. You know, you've got the same claims. Um, in, in the end, the insurance companies are going to try and collect enough premiums to pay all those claims and get some profits. Uh, so it's it, but so it's going to raise premiums for some people, and and, and lower them for others in, in all different insurance. Uh, but but that's an example of, of one of the the primary ways it's being used. If we look at the Internet of Things, disruptive technology, building automation, now we're looking at the introduction of autonomous vehicles taking the place of drivers changing the market tremendously. What impact will that have on enterprise risk management um, as a whole, looking at strategic risks, operational risks on a larger basis versus looking at just your hazard and loss-based risks? Well, a lot of those things are going to cause changes. And first of all, they add uncertainty in the short run. Uh, You know, autonomous vehicles, for instance, uh, there's legal issues. You know, who's, li- who's liable then if an accident happens? If the person wasn't controlling the car, are they still liable that, that's sitting in it? Um, if multiple people are sitting in the car, are all of them liable? Um, or, or is it the manufacturer of the car or, or, or somebody else <laughs> that, 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 that's liable on that? So legal issues have to be worked out. And, and insurance companies are not excited to get into contracts to cover things where the legality of who, who has to get paid what um, is, is not settled. Uh, insurance companies want to avoid that as much as they can. So that, that may cause there to be new upstart insurance companies that aren't worried about that. You know, that, that uh, there are companies that will possibly try one approach to that and fail and all be gone. Or the one one of them that figures out an approach that is the one that works may become the next biggest insurance company, and, and that's just the way business evolves in in our capitalistic creative disruption economy. So, um, but uh, as so far as as how that that plays out within an ERM program, I think if it's done right, it can help companies to deal with those changes and adapting to them. And, and, and I think that's because the ERM program adds a couple of things to what traditionally had been done. Uh, one of them, one of the things in a good ERM program adds is, is a, a more formal kind of uh, control cycle uh, to, to the risk management. And part of a, a control cycle is a part where you look back and you identify what went right, what went wrong, uh, and, and that crystallizes information that, that goes into the next cycle. And, and that information, uh, if the world's starting to change in some way, the companies that are doing this more formal process uh, will have that, that information in a better form. The second thing that ERM does uh, that uh, only exists in a very ad hoc manner uh, without it is, is has a formal emerging risk process. And uh, so with the emerging risk process, some, uh, nobody's perfect, so it won't be all, but some of, of these new trends are, are going to be recognized. And uh, 
in a good emerging risk process, at some point you, you spend the time to say, okay, if this really does happen, what am I going to do about it? And uh, you won't necessarily always get the right answers when you're doing that but the fact is that it, it's like exercising you know if, if you if you exercise that muscle to imagine what could go wrong and how am I going to do about it on something new you'll be better at, at doing that and and so those companies uh, will be better at, at surviving all these changes one thing I want to comment on as you uh, alluded to it in terms of where the liability uh, may lay with some of these new technologies, for example, uh, autonomous uh, vehicles. I read recently that Elon Musk uh, looks at this problem of insurance with automated vehicles and has said that he is confident that the quality of the software will be able to prevent these types of accidents from happening and that he feels confident that he can self-insure against these risks without having go to go out to the insurance market. Uh, which, which I find an, an interesting take on this. I, I think that, of course, we'll see that the proof is in the pudding when it comes to these types of products. A any, any thoughts on that? Well, just in general, that in insurance companies that offer coverages um, with the attitude of there's nothing to this, there's no cost, we're not going to charge anything for it, which sounds like the, the road Musk is going down, um, Sometimes that works, but often it doesn't. You know, for instance, uh, I worked many years ago in, in life insurance companies, which started throwing little guarantees into savings products. And, and the guarantees were around, oh, no, we'll, we'll guarantee you against the stock market ever going south more than some small amount. Uh, and what they they looked back at history and they said, oh well, you know, ah, that what's that going to cost us? Five basis points. So we'll, we'll just throw that in for nothing. Uh, and um, I remember working uh, for an insurance company is being sued because there was, their clients were saying there was too many charges in these contracts, you know, this, this doesn't make sense at all. And then all of a sudden the dot-com bubble burst, the, the value of the funds in the contract went down 20 plus percent, these guarantees hit, and, and the cost of, of making good on the guarantees was more than all the fees that they had collected. Uh, so they thought there was very little chance of this, and a lot of insurance companies got caught because they had given away insurance without charging appropriately for it. What I'd like to do is to finish with a question that I get asked sometimes, and the, the question is, for people who are considering a career in risk management or in insurance or reinsurance, what makes this exciting uh, as, as an industry to get into? Well, um, the way I think of it personally is when I played sports as a, a, as a young person, I always played defense, and, and I always found that exciting, that uh, you never knew what the offense was going to throw at you, and uh, so you had to be prepared for sort of the standard attacks, and you had to be good and competent and know that the fastest guy on the other team was going to be coming at you, and so on. And so uh, you have to be a person to like this kind of work that you like being on defense. Everybody finds that they probably are somebody who wants to do this offense, wants to do the startup, wants to, to go out and do that, or they want to be the people who are protecting what you already have. And uh, it, it's a personality thing, and that, that's my answer to it, is, is that uh, 
if if your personality is that you like the defense part of that, I think risk management is the absolute best. Uh, insurance in general is good. Reinsurance uh, is 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 more interesting stuff than the because it's it's sort of operating on the margin of of the insurance. It's it, and what I wind up doing is is helping insurance companies figure out how to stay in business. And I think that's that's real exciting um, because if the work I do works out the way we're all hoping it will, it can change the lives of, of so many people that are relying on the insurance company ultimately to protect their lives uh, and, and their financial futures. So I want to thank you very much, David, for being a part of the podcast uh, today. Uh, this conversation was very interesting, and I think uh, many of our listeners will learn a great deal from the conversations. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. Oh, you're welcome, and thanks for having me. We spoke with David Ingram, who is the head of Willis Reinsurance's Enterprise Risk Management Advisory Group, helping insurance company clients to develop and improve their enterprise risk management practices. We spoke today about the work that he's done in the plural rational uh, theory and uh, also on its application in businesses and to the overall business environment. For our listening audience, uh, we will refer listeners to the articles you've written uh, on this topic that are publicly available on the podcast webpage. Uh, This can be found at SoundCloud under the program Dancing with the Black Elephant. Find out more about our programs, including our MS in Enterprise Risk Management, at our website, www.yu.edu forward slash K-A-T-Z or CATS. We would like to hear your feedback on our podcasts, so please send us any questions or comments to us at catspodcast, K-A-T-Z-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at yu.edu. Thanks for listening.